Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? This is Carrie. And I'm Joe. Please remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just taking fingerprints right off your new red dress and talking about 80s music. So give us a break. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Joe. How are you? Hi, welcome. I'm good. How are you? Good. Great. And welcome to any new listeners and loyal listeners. We found some in McAllen, Texas, Dieppe, New Brunswick, Canada, and Sendai, Japan. Hello. Hello to all those folks. Please keep up with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash HRT80S, and our Twitter at HRT80S. A lot of stuff happening on our Twitter lately. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's like, who's she? <laughs> I shouldn't sound so shocked, I guess. <laughs> I guess that was the work of producer Dave. I guess so, yes. He has stepped in and started doing some of the social media stuff, so that's good. Tidbits, Joe. We need to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which you and I both watched on HBO. Where do you want to start? I, there's so much, you know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I guess we can try to start at the beginning. Now, I watched it last week. You watched it, what, three, four days ago? Yes. And to be transparent, I stopped at a certain point. So we'll see if you continue. <laughs> I'll, okay. just, I'll just jump okay. in and let everyone know when that was. Right off the bat, you know, with Taylor Swift and Carol King, mm-hmm. I was impressed. I thought Taylor sounded good. I've heard from other people they thought she didn't sound so great. What did you think? Yeah, I wasn't super impressed with her performance. I didn't like what she did to the song. She sang, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? And there was too much going on with it, like too much orchestration. It was like a reputation B-side. Yeah, that song is, um, it's iconic for just being very simple and just voices. And there was too much happening with it, like I said. So I wasn't a big fan of it. She didn't sound bad, but I just didn't like what she did with the song. The arrangement, yep. sure. Yep. They spent a lot of time on Carol King. I guess yeah. I haven't seen one of these in a long time, or definitely not in full. I've seen clips and stuff, mm-hmm. but it was like 20, 25 minutes. You'd think they would give that to everyone, but there were some that just really got glossed over. Yeah, I wrote in my notes, do they always do these long video packages? (laughs) Because yeah, it went on for quite some time. Of course, every inductee deserves that they're getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. But this being such a huge class, and then like you said, they either cut out parts of some of them, or they didn't give long ones to all the Mm -hmm. nominees. Having her up front and be so long was kind of glaring to the rest of the nominees that didn't get that attention. We could ask, you know, we have listeners that went to the um, induction ceremony. We can ask them, hey, were you in those seats for like five hours? (laughs) Like how much got cut really, right? Yes, for sure. So my one big takeaway from Carol King's segment was that she's tiny. (laughs) When she was standing next to Taylor Swift, I was like, is Taylor Swift on like an apple box or what? She's tall, though. Taylor's like six feet. She's like 5'11". Is she really? Okay. Yeah, she's really tall. Carol King looked really tiny. And she sounded very good. I liked her performance. Yeah, it was good. She seems very nice. Yeah. All right. And then we had um, Dr. Dre inducting LL Cool J. And I don't know, I thought Dr. Dre didn't do a great job. It was weird. He kept making this joke about how when LL Cool J got dropped or left Def Jam Records, they gave him a watch. (laughs) And Dr. Dre was kind of like kept going back to that, like, they go that watch now or something. I just thought it was kind of like a 
like a negative way to talk. Like, we're here to celebrate LL Cool J. We don't need to talk about that. But LL Cool J himself gave an amazing performance, and I liked his speech. His speech was great. It was sweet at the end when he was talking about his mom. And I thought the performance was great. Yeah. And going into it, I knew he was going to bring out J-Lo and Eminem. And in my mind, when I read that, I thought, well, that's something I'm going to fast forward. Yeah. But I, I really liked it. I thought they did a great job. And good for LL Cool J. He talked about all the times he didn't make it in and, you know, turn it into a, a positive thing. He was yeah. like, I always just thought of those people who were voting for me and were making noise for me. And that's sweet. I think um, when we talked about the inductees, I kind of poo-pooed LL Cool J a little bit and was kind of like, you know, he's been on the ballot a bunch of times and he hasn't gotten in. And now they're giving him this, this special category he was included in as the inductee. After watching this performance, I felt bad that I said that. He deserves it. And seeing the people talk about him and his legacy, like he has a bigger legacy than I remembered. And that's just my ignorance. So good for LL Cool J. I was really impressed. What do you think of Angela Bassett's speech inducting Tina Turner? It was fine. The speech was fine. She was being very theatrical. The delivery. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what planet are we on? It was just weird because it felt rehearsed and disingenuous at the end of the day. Like, it, she didn't feel like she was speaking from the heart. Right. Because the words were there. The words were heartfelt. The mm -hmm. words were, I'm like, this is everything I would want to say if I were doing this, right? But it just felt like a parody of a celebrity giving an induction speech, right? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it was just so... She was talking like this. And I was just like, all right, I, that's a choice. <laughs> but what can you say about Tina Turner? I mean, mm -hmm. the only disappointment, I think, was that she was not there to perform. There was a short clip of her accepting it by video from, I assume, her home in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed the first couple performances. Who was it now? It was Mickey Guyton. Mickey Guyton. Well, first it was her and Brian, not Brian Adams, because Brian Adams had to drop out. Her and Keith Urban saying, uh, it's only it's love. Only love. <laughs> that was fine. I mean, that was fine. Then Mickey Guyton came out and saying, what's love got to do with it? I hate this phrase because everyone uses it now. It's become a cliche, but I'm going to say it anyways. Mickey Guyton knew the assignment. <laughs> uh -huh. Wow. See, I feel the opposite. Oh, my God. I was really impressed by her. And her guitar playing. Well, yeah. Normally, yes. I'm just like, every time she's on the Grammys, I'm like, why? Mm -hmm. Her? Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> and this was the first time I felt like, okay, I think I get it. But you weren't impressed with Mickey Guyton? <sighs> she didn't win me over. Uh, I don't know anything about her. I know the name, but honestly, don't think I've ever seen her perform before. I just thought she looked great. She wore a jean jacket over a black leather dress. So she was giving us Tina vibes, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought she did a great job. Like, listen, she's never going to compare to Tina, but she really right. sold that song. And then Christina Aguilera came out, and what did she even sing? I don't remember. River Deep Mountain oh, High. Oh, Yes. When they said, like, what she was going to sing, I'm like, okay, if anyone's going to do that song, mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Christina's going to knock it out of the park. And you thought she did? No. <laughs> yeah. I have written here, Christina sounds fake and looks worse. <laughs> That's awful. 
every time she would sing a line, the way she was presenting herself, I'm like, oh, she's been holding back. She's going to let it out right now. Mm. And then 10 seconds, I'm like, right now. (laughs) Right now. And it never came. I think when I mean fake, it's like the same thing I said about Angela Bassett. There's something missing from the core of it. Mm. You're right. Like, if there's anybody that can sing that song, it's Christina Aguilera. She has the pipes for it. But it just didn't, there's, there was no emotion behind it. It just wasn't it. As far as the speeches go, I think Drew Barrymore had the best one. I totally agree with you. And not just because she was inducting the Go-Go's, which was obviously what we were there for. This is the best performance Drew Barrymore has ever given in her whole life. <laughs> She sounded excited, and you could feel the excitement, Mm -hmm. and it sounded genuine. And when I say she was excited, every sentence she did, she could barely hold it together. She was the exact opposite of Angela Bassett. You could tell she was so excited to be there and truly loved this band, where I don't know how they pick these inductors. We've talked about that before. But with Drew Barrymore, when they announced it, it's like, oh, okay. But after seeing her speech, you know why. Like it She was a true blue fan. She yeah. was obsessed with this band, and she wanted nothing more in the world than to talk about her favorite band and how much she loved them. It was just pure joy. And there was a picture that they put on the screen that was Drew Barrymore at, like, what, age seven? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dressed up as Belinda, sitting next to Belinda. She got to meet her. It's like when we talked about the Hall of Fame when Gwen Stefani had that picture of her and Sting, was it? Yeah. Very cute. And the performance was great. They did a kind of a medley. I think they sounded amazing. I think they did, too. And they obviously were still feeling it and were excited to be there. And then their speeches were all great, too. Like, they took the opportunity to talk about the need for more women in the hall and what they felt about being trailblazers and wanting to still inspire people even today, which I loved. So this is where I stopped. I didn't watch anymore after the Go-Go's. Yeah, you know, did you catch the Kraftwerk segment? Yep, I remember Kraftwerk. Okay. I saw that. That was good. Yeah. And the Randy Rhodes segment. I feel like you probably saw that, too. Yes. Randy Rhodes, Todd Rundgren, who refused to participate. Patty Smith, you know, appeared by video to talk about him. I enjoyed that segment, even though I don't know a ton of his music. Yeah, I enjoy Todd Rundgren to a point. <laughs> So we fast-forwarded Jay-Z and Foo Fighters. Yeah, I didn't even we watch We both it. skipped those. Especially since I knew that Dave Chappelle was involved with Jay-Z's, which I was just kind of like, I don't think so, honey. <laughs> but was Beyonce even there whenever they were cutting to Jay-Z in the audience? I didn't see her. I didn't see her either. Yeah, I did watch just the last bit of his taped segment where their daughter Blue Ivy was making fun of him. And Beyonce was on that, but I didn't see her there. So did you see the end? Like, usually they do, like, a big A super jam. jam? Yeah. I forgot to go to the end, but I don't remember hearing much about it, so. Well, I know for sure that, like, Paul McCartney jammed with Foo Fighters, but that's to be expected since he was inducting mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And then I heard there was cut for time. They had rehearsed it, but did not do it. Kathy Valentine talked about there was an all-star performance giving honor Charlie to Watts. Charlie Watts. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, it was cool. You know, obviously, the Go-Go's were the highlight for me, but there was other people that I was not expecting much from. And then I was happy that I watched it. 
Yeah, same. I would tell anyone, if they said, did you watch the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction? How was it? I'd say, it was two hours well spent. And then they'd say, but isn't it three hours long? And I'd be like, exactly. (laughs) Yep, I agree. All right, Joe, well, we better get right to it. We've already spent a lot of time talking about our tidbits, but we have a big main topic. And we are going back in time. Back in time. (laughs) To this week in 1985. But just like last time we did this, we're going to read through an actual billboard issue from November 30th, 1985. You can find a copy of the issue and so much more at worldradiohistory.com. Joe, let's start on the first page. There is a color ad at the bottom for Curtis Blow's newest album titled America. The ad copy reads, The King of Rap Rules with his latest single, If I Ruled the World, featured in the film Crush Groove and on his newest album. We talked about Curtis Blow a little bit in episode 112 when his song The Breaks was voted the best single of 1980 in the Paz and Jop poll. He was the first rapper ever signed to a major label, Mercury Records. And America was his sixth album for Mercury. Crush Groove, which we should probably do a whole episode about at some point, was based on the early days of Def Jam recordings and Russell Simmons' start in the industry. In the movie, Curtis Blow, appearing as himself, is one of the acts signed to the fictional Crush Groove label by Russell Walker. Blow performs the song as part of a concert scene in the film. The single debuted this week at 47 on the dance chart and eventually reached number 25 on that chart and 16 on the R&B chart. It was significant because it was the first time a sample loop was used on a hip-hop record. Blow used a drum machine to loop the sample from a 1982 song called Pump Me Up by Trouble Funk so that the sound was continuous and there was no pause. Here's a clip of the original. Blow described how this replicated how DJs used to play records live, but they would need two records of the same song and keep the break going by switching between the different turntables. Curtis Blow said that sample looping brought the sound of the live drummer back into hip-hop. Just using drum machines caused a mechanical sound, but creating a sample loop really aped the feel of a live drummer. Joe, what did you think of If I Ruled the World? It's crazy to me that there's a 90s song that's Nas with Lauryn Hill of the Fugees that samples this for the chorus. It's wild to me that I never heard the original until this playlist. I had never heard it either, but I wasn't familiar with that song. I read about it, but I had never heard the Nas and Lauryn Hill version. That's good. You should check it out. I mean, Lauryn Hill sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
She's just a bit of a better singer than Curtis Blow. <laughs> well, I was not expecting the singing, but I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice compliment between the rapping and the singing. But I tried to find credits for who the ladies are singing backup for him and couldn't. I thought they did a mm-hmm. good job. I thought the backup singers yeah. were good. I'm going to keep digging. Music detective is on the case. <laughs> okay, good. But yeah, I thought this was really interesting. I didn't know when I decided to talk about this song that it was so historic. You know, I love to learn new things and I had never really heard that specific phrase or understood what a sample loop was. And his whole description of how it kind of changed the sound and it kind of replicated the feeling of what live turntabling was, was really interesting to me. We want to note that page two is a full-page ad for the Arcadia album we discussed last week. On page six, there's an interesting blurb about convicted record bootlegger Michael Rassio of Queens, who was also known as Charlie Greenberg. (laughs) I don't know what that's all about. He was sentenced to three years in prison for making unauthorized duplications of albums by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, as well as unauthorized live recordings of Bruce Springsteen. He was thought to be the country's biggest manufacturer of bootlegs and was arrested after the police seized two vans full of counterfeit records. He had been convicted once before for such activity and ordered to serve nine weekends in jail. I guess he didn't learn his lesson. (laughs) That's so wild. Yeah, that's bizarre. It's so crazy to think about back in the day, like bootlegging was actually making counterfeit records and tapes. And then by the 90s, bootlegging was Napster and file sharing. (laughs) On page 12, it's a feature called Out of the Box, where radio programmers reveal why they have jumped on particular new releases. Program director Larry Berger of WPLJ, a top 40 station in New York City, says the song Too Young by Jack Wagner is drawing huge requests, especially from teens. Hey, Larry, I want to see the receipts. (laughs) (laughs) Berger also says, I don't understand why this isn't happening nationally. Spoiler alert, Larry, it's because the song sucks. I got a need to tell you. Know that I was wrong Show you how I feel And what's going on I don't know what to say Except I love that girl so much But I didn't show We ripped Jack Wagner a new one all the way back in episode 5 when we talked about actors who hit the charts, and he just cannot sing. It's horrible. <sighs> well, he was smack dab in the middle of his hugely successful run as a soap actor at this point. He played Frisco Jones on General Hospital from 1983 to 1987, and I think maybe his character was a singer in a band. Did he have an eye patch too? Am I getting maybe? my soap characters confused? I think you are. I think you're thinking of Patch from Days of Our Lives. Oh, I don't geez. know. The name was really Patch. Jones okay. also had a Patch. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Jack had hit the charts and he reached number two on the Hot 100 with All I Need in early 1985. Too Young was the debut single from his follow-up album, Lighting Up the Night. Carrie, it did not light up the no, charts. No, no, no. There are four credited songwriters on this one, including David Foster and... Donny Osmond. 
insane. Ugh. This song would eventually reach 15 on the adult contemporary chart, but topped out at 52 on the Hot 100. Let's never listen to it or speak of it again. I know. It's really bad. It's really bad. He must have sang this on the show or something because no one would want to hear this unless it was had some kind of other tie to something. Here's the one thing that I was pleasantly surprised by, Carrie. Okay. When I saw the title, I was like, oh, no. Oh, he's going to sing about a girl who's too young for him. <laughs> and I was not ready. But he talks about he's too young for whatever's happening in the song. Yeah, I didn't listen too hard, believe me. But I think he's (laughs) talking about how he treated someone very poorly or maybe even cheated on them and then was like, I was too young for this relationship and didn't take it seriously, which, fine. Carrie, defending Jack Wagner. (laughs) I'm not defending, I'm just trying to explain. Sure, sis. From that same feature out of the box, we've got Atlanta R&B station WVEE and their music director Ray Boyd, who says he is working two songs from the Isley Brothers' new album, one, If Leaving Me Is Easy, and the other, Colder Are My Nights. Legends, the Isley Brothers, started in Cincinnati with three brothers from the Isley family. They added more brothers over the years, and even one non-Isley, but he was their brother-in-law. And what was that band meeting like? (laughs) (laughs) They consistently hit both the Hot 100 and R&B charts in the 60s and 70s. After their 1983 album, the six-member group split down the middle. The younger members and the brother-in-law formed Isley Jasper Isley. Oh, they got the (laughs) brother-in-law? Shoot. And the Isley brothers were back to basics, the three original brothers, O'Kelly, Rudolph, and Ronald. Masterpiece, their 23rd album, was released in April of 1985, and Colder Are My Nights was the first single. The colder are my nights. The song was written by session guitarist David Williams and producer Patrick Leonard, who was just beginning his work with Madonna. The song failed to hit the Hot 100, but did reach number 12 on the R&B chart. A second single reached only 42 on the R&B, and O. Kelly Isley passed away from a heart attack early the next year. Oh. I know. That's sad. <sighs> I liked Colder Are My Nights. I that did too. I did too. Yeah. I really liked it. You know, I've said before, I just have some blind spots and, you know, R&B music is one of them, but the Isley Brothers are legends and I really should take some time to listen to their stuff from the 80s because whenever I hear something by them, I'm always like, this is great. <laughs> so I love that the column's called Out of the Box and they talk about like they're taking a chance and it's like, this R&B station in Atlanta's like, well, I'm going to try these singles from someone called the Isley Brothers. It's from their 23rd album. That is Like, they were already legendary at this point, I feel like. Maybe it's because he's working two singles at the same time. Maybe that's the -the out-of-the-box part. I wonder what happened with Isley, Jasper Isley. They had a couple hits, I think. Like, maybe that hit deeper on the Hot 100, but I don't think they lasted Mm. very long. Yeah, that's nuts. 
On page 16, Carrie, in this Billboard magazine, the highest debuting single of the week on the rock chart at number 32 is a song called Give Blood by Pete Townsend off of Townsend's fourth solo album, which was a concept album called White City, a novel, and was accompanied by both a story that was included with the album and a long-form video that was 60 minutes long and starred Townsend. He needs to get a grip. (laughs) This is too much. Yeah, way too much. You know what's the craziest thing is, like, I've never even heard of any of this. So, like, did it work? No. Yeah, exactly. The first single from the album, Face the Face. Honestly, hate the title, hate the song, hate the ending, hate everything about it. (laughs) And remember on the countdown, Casey's always like, now I didn't mess up. That's how the song ends, people. I don't remember this. I blocked it from my mind. What happens? In it? I teach me your ways. It just <laughs> ends so abruptly. It's like you just picked up the needle from the record. Got it. Well, Ugh. you know, Pete Townsend thought he was real hot shit with all this experimental junk. Thinking out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> that face the face reached number 26 on the Hot 100 and peaked at number three on the rock chart. Give Blood would peak at number five on the rock chart, but failed to reach the Hot 100. Here's a clip. Pete Townsend doesn't play any instruments on the single. The track features David Gilmore of Pink Floyd on guitar, Simon Phillips on drums, and Pino Palladino on bass. And Townsend says he told them to, quote, do one of those kind of ricky ticky ricky ticky things, and I'll shout give blood in the microphone every five minutes, and let's see what happens. Garbage happens, Joe. Absolutely. The song was insane. And also, was this like written and recorded in conjunction with American Red Cross? Yeah, (laughs) actually, it's funny you bring that up because there's some blurb on the Wikipedia page that says it was used quite recently in a campaign for blood donation. It's over and over. It's like, give blood. (laughs) Which is silly because the song is like, give blood, but blood will not be enough. It's about corporate people like stepping on the little guy or whatever. (laughs) There's nothing that I just talked about or listened to with them today that I, mm -mm, it's all a no. I do not care for Pete Townsend at all. There's not a good song by him that I can think of. Well, okay, now I got to take it back. Let my love yep, open the door. That's the only one. I know. <laughs> that's the I only know. One. It's so good. That's probably in my top 100, you know? Yeah, that one's so good. But then everything else he did in the decade was just horrible. And he just has this pretension about him that's just so ridiculous. Like this whole idea that he wrote a story and did a video. It's like, please, sir. No, thank you. <laughs> sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> All right, let's check in, Joe, on videos recently added to MTV. Page 31 details MTV programming, including those ads and videos broken down by the amount of play they are getting from heavy rotation to light. Broken Wings by Mr. Mister has the longest tenure. It's still in heavy rotation after 18 weeks. I remember that. Jeez. Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder is also in heavy rotation, but has only been out for three weeks. One of the recent ads is a video for I Spy for the FBI by 
The Untouchables. The Untouchables were one of the first, if not the first, ska band to emerge here in the U.S. Formed in L.A. in early 1981, they were one of those L.A. bands that were huge locally but took a long time to get national reach. They appeared as a scooter gang in the 1984 movie Repo Man and signed that year to British label Stiff Records and released the album Wild Child, from which I Spy was taken. A cover of a 1966 single by funk singer Jamo Thomas. The song reached 59 in the UK, but did not chart in the US. At that point, the lineup started going through continual changes. And although the Untouchables still perform occasionally today, only one original member is associated with that group. Mm. Joe, I love this song. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you serious? Yes, you don't? Okay. No, here's my note about it. Okay. Is that I saw it on the playlist. I knew it was coming up. The band name and the song title looked so familiar. Mm-hmm. I was like, I know I know this one. And then the song came on and I didn't know it. Okay. Let me go back and listen again. I wasn't blown away. I like it. I mean, I think we've talked before about ska is not for me in general, but there's something about this one that I find very infectious and very fun. And I think the guy, the singer, has an interesting voice. And I also like the other part where I don't know if it's him mm-hmm. or it's a different singer. But when he's like, I spy, <laughs> he like does the deep part. Are you the one who doesn't like madness? Um, They're fine. I don't dislike them. Mm. I knew there was someone in my life who didn't like them. <laughs> I was trying to think of who it was. I was just thinking when you were talking about ska. But you like horns so much. That's why I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. This is You're right. I don't know. I think I've always just had some kind of aversion to what I think is ska, but maybe it's something else. I don't know. Black and white checkered <laughs> outfits? Yeah, I do not care for those. <laughs> Page 31 is also giving us a playlist for Music Box, the only trans-European all-day music TV channel. I've never heard of it. I never had either. But Carrie, I didn't have cable. Well, I know. Let alone is- <laughs> trans-European cable channels, right? Yes, exactly. But it was a 24-hour music video channel in Europe that launched on March 29th, 1984, but only existed until January of 1987. So that burned bright and quick, yeah, right? Yeah, The Sure Shot with 30 plays a day or for the week, we're not sure, right? It must have been for the week, I think. The week, yeah. It was the song video, I'm Your Man by Wham. And one of the heavy action plays from 15 to 24 plays was Slave to the Rhythm by Grace Jones. We've never talked about her, have we? I don't think so. Mm-hmm, crazy. I'm glad we're doing it now. Yep. Grace Jones was born in Jamaica and moved to Syracuse, New York with her family when she was 13. She began modeling for famous agency Wilhelmina at 18. She spent time living in Paris, signed with Island Records, and recorded her first album in 1977. What a whirlwind. Yeah. She primarily recorded disco music until recording albums in the early 80s, influenced by everything from new wave to reggae. 1985 was a pretty big year for Grace. She appeared in the Bond movie A View to a Kill, sang on Election Day from the Arcadia album we keep talking about every week. (laughs) That's what friends are for, Carrie. (laughs) Yep. 
I didn't know that, though. She sang on that. That's crazy. She sings on election day, which you hate. I know, but now I'm rethinking everything because I love her. I think I like Arcadia. I really do. You're so funny. 1985, she also released the album Slave to the Rhythm. It was a concept album produced by Trevor Horn, because just like Arcadia, we've got to talk about him every week until the end of time. It's so funny how, like, it's like one of those things when you hear a name or of somebody for the first time, and then all of a sudden, everything you hear is about them. The songs on the album were interspersed with conversations with Grace about her life, as well as an actor reciting passages from a biography about her. It gets very confusing now because the album was also just different versions of the same song, which included the lyrics Slave to the Rhythm. The album track actually titled Slave to the Rhythm was not the single. The album track titled Ladies and Gentlemen, Miss Grace Jones was released as the single with the title Slave to the Rhythm. I don't get it. It makes no sense. (laughs) to the rhythm. song on which all the other versions was based was intended for Frankie Goes to Hollywood as their follow-up to Relax, but when they passed, Horn gave it to Jones. The single did not hit the Hot 100, but went to number 20 on the R&B chart and topped the dance chart for one week in February of 1986. The video was nominated for Best Female Video at the 86 MTV VMAs, but Grace lost to Whitney Houston for How Will I Know. The 86 Awards. We watched that, That's right? That's what I was going to ask you. I and she was in the audience. Yeah, I, she definitely was yeah. in the audience, but I couldn't remember if that was 86, the year she was nominated, or 87. I think it was 86. And I remember they were walking into the crowd and interviewing people, and she was not having it. Yeah, she was being very cool. I want to say this right up front. I didn't know any of this really history of Grace Jones, and I always thought that she was one of these actors like Jack Wagner that was given basically a recording career because she was famous and maybe they thought she would sell some records. I did not know that she started off basically as a recording artist after, you know, modeling and that in 1985, she was already seven or eight years into a recording career. And acting was kind of like the secondary thing. So I must apologize to Miss Grace Jones for all these years of thinking that she was just this pretty face that had been handed a recording contract. Nope, it was the opposite. She did the opposite of a Jack Wagner. (laughs) Yes. I mean, this song in particular, I'm not really feeling all that much. It doesn't really build to anything for me. It's just kind of the same thing over and over again. So I wasn't really understanding the appeal. I don't say this very often, but I'm going to need the radio edit. I don't want the talking. I'm sorry. I also thought that, too. I thought to myself, it was so difficult to try to figure out exactly what was the single like we're talking about. That then I thought after I put it on the playlist and listened to it, I'm like, okay, I understand this is the album track that was released as a single, but there must have been like a dance remix or something for this to make we it gotta to, find out. you know, number one yeah. on the dance chart. I'm like, this is not the version that they were playing in the clubs. I think my first introduction to Grace Jones was when she was in the movie Boomerang. She gives a fantastic performance. Uh-huh. 
such a good movie and she does so good in it. But I think even when that came out in 92, I knew she was famous already. I just didn't know what for. Yeah. I mean, she's straight up gorgeous. I mean, she's still striking to look at, you know. She was kind of being an a-hole on those VMAs that we were talking about. But, like, I was there for it because I was just like, I don't care. Grace Jones can do whatever she wants. (laughs) At one point, she's like, why don't you just cut to the f***ing Hooters again? (laughs) (laughs) She honestly might have said that. (laughs) (laughs) She does have another great song from the 80s called Pull Up to the Bumper. I just listened to it this morning. I have it on a playlist. It's so good. Yeah, see, I was going to say, she's got much better songs than this. So that's, again, I'm kind of mystified as to why this one went to number one on the dance chart. Maybe we could highlight some of her stuff on uh, Just a Bit Outside or something like that. Yeah. Joe, on page 42, we've got a listing of the most added singles to R&B radio. Stevie Wonder's Go Home had been added to 32 stations, and Do Me Baby by Melissa Morgan had been added to 30. Melissa got her start in New York City with a group called Shades of Love, which reached the dance chart in 1982 with Body to Body, and then joined another group that had some limited success on the charts called High Fashion. After singing backup for Shaka Khan and Whitney Houston, She released her debut album, also titled Do Me Baby, in 1986. A cover of a 1981 print song from the album Controversy, Melissa's version of Do Me Baby, which was sitting at number 89 this week on the R&B chart, would go all the way to number one on that chart. Topped out at number 46 on the Hot 100. She had many more singles reach the R&B chart, but never charted on the Hot 100 again. Joe, did you know this one? I didn't. Okay. And I knew the name Melissa Morgan, but I don't think I knew any of her songs. Yeah, I was wondering if this was one that you heard on your like throwback R&B stations. Yeah. Yeah, way back Wednesday. It may have been, but to borrow a phrase from Carrie, it must have just faded into the background. (laughs) That's kind of how I felt about it. I was excited for it, but then I was kind of like, I don't know, Melissa. You know, it just didn't do much for me, and it's hard to compare to Prince. Yeah, good for her, taking it to number one on the R&B chart. Yes. On page 56, we're going to talk about a review included in the New and Noteworthy section, which highlights new and developing acts worthy of attention. We'll see. (laughs) And we've got another actor trying to make the leap to music, Mr. Philip Michael Thomas. This was a full year before Don Johnson would release his debut album. Philip released an album called Living the Book of My Life, written by Pete Townsend. Just kidding. (laughs) It's just called Living the Book of My Life, which is insane on its own. Yes. Um, He put it out on his own record label. Okay, this is just getting crazier and crazier Mm -hmm. already. Thomas also wrote and produced all the tracks. Billboard describes it as a lightweight pop reggae offering and says the title track offers an unexpected spiritual message, but the rest is pretty standard fare. 
Let's hear a little bit of that title track now. Thomas performed the song in an episode of Miami Vice that aired on February 22nd of 85. And around this time, he coined the phrase EGOT for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony and declared that he intended to win them all. (laughs) Joe, so far, he has won none. (laughs) I know, but his Wikipedia entry is quick to point out, but he was nominated for a People's (laughs) Choice Award. (laughs) Well, he didn't want a PGOT. All right, Joe, writing for Rolling Stone in 1986, Kurt Loder called this album a tepid gruel of treachly reggae, the lyrics a mind-puckering jambalaya of self-enthused psychopabble. <laughs> so it's a rave. Oh, man. Thomas released another studio album in 1988, but that was the end of his recording career, (laughs) unless you count the album of music he released related to his promotion of the Psychic Readers Network called PMT Psychic Connection Volume 1. Hello, I'm Philip Michael Thomas, and I have something very special for you. And getting it is as easy as picking up your telephone. Are you curious? Yeah. All right. Well, every day, opportunities for love, money, and happiness pass us by. Doors open and close, and we don't even know why. But just as great athletes need coaches, we need guidance also to recognize opportunity, to find love, to have money. And I invite you to make this call right now and get connected. Oh, my God, Carrie. (laughs) This is like fish in a barrel. It really is. I mean, you know, when I saw this on the new and noteworthy section, Philip Michael Thomas released an album. I was like, yeah, I think I remember him recording music, but I'd never heard it. And then when I heard this track, I was like, you know, I expected this to be bad, but this is next level bad. I I can't. There are no words, you know. I don't know. I don't know what his relationship was to reggae music or that whole vibe. He hated it, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) And wanted it stopped in its tracks. I just like, I don't want to say it's cultural appropriation when I don't know how Philip Michael Thomas connected to this, but it sounds like a parody of reggae music. It sounds like, you know, in a movie, a per like a white person with dreadlocks singing this song. (sighs) It's horrible. It's horrible. I will say that, I mean, he was a super hottie. Yeah, he he was fine. I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't call him a super hottie. To each their own. I don't know. You're made of stone. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, (laughs) Joe. That's it for this week back in 1985. That was fun. I really love doing these because you find stuff like Philip Michael Thomas. And someone somewhere believed in his music career as the killer, you know? Well, I don't know. Remember, we said he released it on his own record label. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, that is it, Joe. Anything else you want to share with the listeners this week? No, no, no. (laughs) No, no, no. Well, we will tease next week then. 
we have done now, we've done longest piano solos, longest guitar solos, longest sax solos. We've covered flute solos in a quiz. Next week, it's going to be longest organ solos. Oh, longest organ. I like. <laughs> oh, solos. Get out of here. Oh, I'll take us out, Joe. I will tell everyone to please be kind to yourself, be kind to others, be kind to animals, be kind to the world. Just be kind. Just be kind. And demand kindness from everyone else in the immortal words of Holly Knight, as interpreted by the great Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Tina Turner. Better be good to me. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.